Well, happy Sunday morning to everyone. I hope that you are doing well. I want to say thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning on the podcast as we continue to uh, socially distant responsibly uh, while also being able to exercise our faith and get the message of the gospel out, uh, whether it's at the drive-in service on YouTube or here on the podcast, we sincerely thank you for uh, joining us however you are. And as we turn our attention to the Word of God this morning, I want to ask you to take your Bibles and let's go to Revelation chapter 2 together. You know, most people have a a favorite show that, that they just love to watch. And one of our family's favorite shows is American Ninja Warrior. It's it's just amazing to watch the strength, agility, and balance that those men and women have. Uh, one of the uh, more interesting obstacles is called the jumping spider, and it's where a contestant has to hit a mini trampoline just right to propel themselves upward and outward uh, into kind of this tunnel that has two walls uh, on each side. And when they jump there, they have to throw their arms and legs out uh, and just stick them against the wall, essentially. Uh, if they don't get good traction, uh, then they're going to fall into the water and their run's going to be over. And So they have to have equal pressure, right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot. Uh, and they have to be able to keep that pressure as they work their way through this tunnel Uh, to the end of the obstacle. It truly is a balancing act of strength and agility. And it got me to to thinking about the book of Revelation. No, it's not a jumping spider. Uh, Though, honestly, it seems like the only thing that's missing, right? But really, it's the book of Revelation paints a balanced picture concerning uh, two attributes of God that many people consider to be in uh, competition with each other when, in reality, uh, they cooperate. And the two attributes are God's justice and God's grace. So how does God balance His justice and His grace? Because the one big thing is that the book of Revelation presents both God's justice and grace. Not in competition, but cooperation. So let's look at it here as we begin Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou cannot bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. 
But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning and this opportunity to study your word. And Lord, we pray that as we read your word, we wouldn't be trying to have our own opinion or force our interpretation into it, but rather we would allow your Holy Spirit to teach us the truth of the word of God. And Father, we pray as we see here, Uh, in the text, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Again, the one big thing is that the book of Revelation presents both God's justice and his grace. And so let's look at both of them here through really the context of the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. It's covered there in chapters 2 and 3. And uh, truthfully, we see this balance throughout the entire book of Revelation. But Jesus' message uh, to the churches begins with God showing his justice. You know, seven times in chapters 2 and 3, we read the words, I know your works. Now, this is Jesus saying, not only am I watching what you're doing, but I'm also examining why you are doing it. There's nothing that escapes the eyes of God. Now, I have to be really honest with you. That can be kind of scary. If it wasn't for the truth, that I've been saved by his grace and declared not guilty, I would be terrified because I know who I am. I know not only some of the things I do, but I also know some of the thoughts that I have, thoughts that would condemn me. And I'm sure we're all the same here. And while God may put up with sin for a while, We need to understand that sooner or later, God is going to bring judgment. For God to never judge man's sinfulness would refute the belief that God is just. You know, think uh, think about a couple of well-known Old Testament stories. The the first one is the flood there in Genesis 6 through 9. The reason for the flood is given in chapter 6, verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is what led to it saying that God was grieved in his heart. It just how sinful man had become. And because God is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. Therefore, not only did our actions warrant judgment, but Genesis 6 5 showed that so do our thoughts and our intentions. Uh, The second story would be that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus reveals to Abraham what he was going to do in Genesis 18. And of course, we know that Abraham begins to plead with Jesus not to judge this city. You know, there was a certain amount of righteous people in the city. But I think 
the most important verse in that context is what Abraham says in Genesis 18.25. He says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Listen, Abraham knew the sinfulness of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he knew the goodness and the holiness of God. So Abraham's conclusion is whatever God does is right. That's the very meaning of justice, doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Do you and I have that same belief? Do we have the same understanding that whatever God does, it's right? It may not be what we like, but it's right. God is also just in the fact that he holds everyone to the same standard. We know that in the book of James, uh, it says to show partiality or, or favoritism, it's sinful. But let's be honest, we like some people more than we like others. Now, I'm not talking about family. That, that's a whole different relationship. But we allow friends to get away with some things that frankly we wouldn't let anybody else get away with. Now, I hate to, to break it to us, but that's favoritism. You know, to, to not show favoritism is to treat the person I consider my worst enemy the same way that I treat my best friend. And the reality is God doesn't do that. I mean, th this is yet another way that God is different than us. That God holds us all to the same standard. He does the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Another proof of God's justice and lack of favoritism in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 is the fact that God calls out church's sin. He, he doesn't gloss over it. He doesn't act like it's not there. Uh, now, in the city of Ephesus where we read, you know, he says they left their first love. Really, we can call that that Ephesus had become a legalistic church. He said that one, looking at other letters there, one church was tolerating false teachers. Uh, another was tolerating false teachings. He accused one church of being a bunch of hypocrites. They looked like they were alive, but Jesus said, you're spiritually dead. Then, of course, we can't forget what he says about the church at Laodicea. They, they were lukewarm. All right, uh, Jesus didn't have anything good to say for them. Uh, he said, you know, the way that you guys are living, it makes me sick. It makes me want to vomit. Uh, that's some pretty strong language right there, isn't it? But I think it's important for us to point this out because one debate that has been raging for a long time is who wrote the Bible. Christians say that it is the divinely inspired and errant word of God, that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. We, we use 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21 um, as a few proof texts of others. Now, unbelievers say... Well, it's just a book written by man. So, 
first off, we allow the Bible to speak for itself. The second way that we can refute this is I want us to follow a, a train of thought. If the Bible was written by man, do you think those men would naturally include their own sinfulness? I mean, how many of you like to be made aware of your shortcomings and your sins? How many of you just freely walk up and go, yeah, you know what, this is what I struggle with? If Abraham wrote his life story, do you think he would have put down the two times he lied and had his wife lie that, uh, and say that she was his sister? Do you think Moses would have recorded how he lost his temper and because of it, God said he wouldn't be able to go into the promised land? If David wrote his life story, do you think he would have included uh, adultery and murder? What about Peter and his denials of Jesus? See, I believe that one of the evidences that the Bible is God's word and that it is about God and not man is the fact that God revealed the people that many call, you know, quote-unquote heroes of the faith. They were fallen sinners. But God still loved them and God still used them for his glory. The Bible is about God, not man. And the beautiful thing about God in the book of Revelation is the balancing act. Yes, God presents justice and judgment on the sinfulness and the rebellion of man. But we also see in the same book God's grace, God's mercy. Because God is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. So he would have been well within his right to judge the churches for their sin and just to walk away. He could have said, I'm done. He could have done it with Adam and Eve, Cain, Noah, Moses, Joshua, David, Paul, Peter. Let's be honest, he could have done it with us. Yet we see five different times in Revelation 2 and 3, God calls a church to repent. To repent means to have a change of mind that leads to a change in action. In other words, God is showing grace by giving them another chance. God was saying, listen, I'm going to judge you unless you see your sin confess it and turn from it but if you turn from it then I'm going to forgive you and I've got these promises that are yours Yeah, I imagine that was probably hard for each of those churches to hear again we don't like hearing when we do something wrong yet holding one another accountable is the most loving thing that God can do for us and it's one of the most loving things that we can do for one another. You know, it, it wouldn't be love if God saw our sin and how our life would end and where we would spend all of eternity but say nothing or, or did nothing to try to get our attention and, and to turn us and to change who we are and change our eternity. This probably won't be a very popular thought, but I think COVID-19 may have been one of the most loving, gracious things God could have done for many in our nation 
and people around the world. And I'm going to be honest, even for the church. Because so many people have been rejecting him in some ways or thinking they were right with God when they weren't. That he brought something into our lives that in many ways brought us to our knees. Church, you have heard me say this before. God is not afraid to put us flat on our back because it's only then that we recognize our own helplessness and it's only when we're on our back that we can look up to where our help truly comes from. God knows what it takes to get our attention and for us to finally cry out to Him. And in His love and His grace, He'll do it. Yet sadly, there are still many who are going to refuse. Another act of grace is that God not only pointed out those who were living in sin, but He also pointed to those that were living for Him. Multiple times in those two chapters we see, but not all of you. A final way that we see God's grace in these two chapters is that God promised to give rewards to those who persevered and to those who repented. Yes, God pointed out their sin. Yes, God said, if you don't turn from your sin, I'm going to judge you. But God also said, if you come to me, if you turn from your sin, I will give you a greater blessing than this world can ever offer you. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you salvation and my presence now and for all of eternity. So let's ask the question, what are we to do in light of this? I think the first thing that we would say is that we need to learn to examine our walk with God. Do you truly know that you're a child of God? Have you turned from your sin and the rejection of Jesus and instead in faith trusted that Jesus' death and resurrection is the only way you can be saved? No amount of good works, giving, serving, nothing that we can do would save us. I'm not just asking, do you know this in your head? I'm asking, does our life Reflect our words? Does our conduct match our conversation? If not, then Jesus' message of repent applies. Which means we need to repent of any and all sin. Maybe what God is saying this morning is it's time for you to turn from your sin. And turn in faith to Jesus. You haven't gone too far. You haven't sinned so bad that God doesn't love you or or won't save you. But you have to stop where you are. And you have to turn from that sin and turn in faith to surrender to the grace of Jesus Christ. Ask God to change your heart and your life. Ask Him to help you to live for Him from now until you see His face. Will you do that? Maybe you are saved, but but as of late, 
your life isn't really reflecting it. The good news about the gospel is that you can't do anything to earn it, but you also can't do anything so bad as to lose it. You know, we often talk about the fear of the Lord, and, and people think that means to, to cower from God, uh, afraid of His judgment. And, and certainly, judgment is part of it. But too many people have this idea of God that He's just sitting up in heaven waiting on us to mess up so He can uh, discipline us. But this isn't the picture that the Bible paints. The fear of God is not fear of His judgment. The fear of God is being afraid that He will remove His hand from us and not bless us. And so I think we need to ask a question. Is there a sin in our life that is keeping God from blessing us? If so, know that you are running the risk not only of God not blessing you, but also, you're inviting God's judgment into your life. So this morning, stop running. Stop trying to hide it. The, the Bible promises that as we drag our sin into the light, there is grace and there is forgiveness for it. Which should ultimately lead us to praise God for His mercy and His grace. Praise God that he doesn't show favorites. Praise God that he holds us all to the same standard. And praise God for his mercy. We need to praise him for who he is and what he has done. We need to thank God for giving us his mercy and not what we deserve. Thank him for his faithfulness, his love, and his forgiveness. Part of the way that we thank Him is by how we live. We surrender all of who we are to all of who He is. And we simply say, Here, my Lord, use me. Make me like You. Help me to glorify You. Help me to reflect You to the world. See, the scales of God toward the Christian are tipped at the direction of grace and mercy even though we deserve God's justice. And they're tipped that way not because of who we are or what we do, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. Have you thanked Him for that? Are you thanking Him for that by how you're living? Or do you need to spend some time in prayer and repentance this morning? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time of looking into your word. God, I want to pray for each person who is listening to this podcast this morning. I pray, Lord, that they have surrendered to you, that they have turned from their sin, and that they are trusting in you and you alone. Father, I know that there are many who are lost Unfortunately, there are many in churches who are deceived about their standing with you. They believe that because they have said a prayer or raised their hand at a service or an evangelistic revival, that that means they're right with you. But 
they've continued to live however they want. And God, we know that's not what you call us to do. You, that's not how a true child of God lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you would lay the conviction on our hearts if this is who we are. That we may turn from our sin and turn in faith to you. But God, we also know that living the Christian life is impossible on our own. Just as we could not save ourselves, Father, we cannot uh, be faithful and grow in our faith by ourselves. It takes your spirit working in us and your word dwelling richly in us. And so God, if we're not being faithful to be in your word until your word gets in us, I pray that today we would confess it and turn from it and that God, we would be in your word and that we would live it out for your glory and for our good. Draw hearts to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say thank you for spending uh, your time with us this morning. I hope this is a message of encouragement uh, and also a clear call to turn from your unbelief to faith in Jesus and to walk by faith for his glory and for your good. Until next Sunday, this is Pastor Justin saying I love you, I'm praying for you, and may God bless you.